Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 22, Abraham Lincoln. Yes, folks, Abraham Lincoln. The Abraham Lincoln. Somehow today, I have to start giving you a short history of Abraham Lincoln's life. Never have I felt this inadequate to the task of writing and explaining history, and that's saying something after this series. Few outside of America have ever heard of James Buchanan or James K. Polk, but many have heard of Lincoln, the Great Emancipator. And yet, even very educated Americans might not know all that much about Lincoln's background, his habits, or his character. Today, I will share a glimmer of knowledge about his past. Lincoln's history is fortunately not obscure by any means. But even in his own day, he remained almost entirely unknown until he ascended to the presidency. Meanwhile, in the light of history, Lincoln takes on heroic, even mythic proportions. Not for nothing does he have a vast statue in Washington, nor is it mere chance that his face, of all faces, became one of four American presidents carved onto Mount Rushmore. Lincoln shaped and reshaped the Republic. In a scant four years, he changed the nation's direction completely. This podcast is in fact the story of how that old union was destroyed and a new one founded. Yet all of this glory hides Lincoln the man. And when we look at his actions, his judgments, and his pronouncements, we say they do not come from a perfect man, but a man in a place of deep humility. Not merely in the moral sense, but in that Lincoln did not see himself as being entirely equal to the challenges laid out before him. He was no Napoleon or Caesar, who sought autocracy, just a man whose place in history was thrust upon him, and which he attained by virtue of hard work and fortune as much or more than native genius. And he was very well aware of this. So let us examine Abraham Lincoln, where he came from, as well as the influences that shaped his life, character, politics, and talents, and how he came to be the nation's most unlikely savior. Abraham Lincoln arrived in this world on February 12, 1809, in a small and very rustic cabin owned by the young couple of Thomas and Nancy Lincoln. By geographic coincidence, his birthplace lay a good way southeast of the growing village of Elizabethtown, and almost directly south of the somewhat larger Louisville. This happened to be just about dead center in a state that would itself become so central to the nation's Civil War saga, and pretty close to geographically center of the nation as a whole. By an odd historical coincidence, he was less than a year younger than his future arch-rival Jefferson Davis, himself born only about a third of the state's length towards the southwest in Fairview, Kentucky. But the importance of all that lay far in the future. In these days, the Lincolns were hard-working, humble farm folk, good at their trade, yet not at all significant. The family line had been in the United States for more than a century before the Revolutionary War, and a fair bit is known about them. From Massachusetts to Pennsylvania to Virginia, they had prospered and often felt well-off, locally noteworthy and even respectable, but never powerful or famous. The family fortunes changed when Daniel Boone widely advertised lands for the taking in Kentucky, although as the Lincolns soon discovered, that was not altogether a true statement. Abraham Lincoln, grandfather of the future president, packed up his family in the Shenandoah Valley and set out for this new opportunity across the Appalachians. This Lincoln had grown familiar with the landscape of Kentucky and had himself explored it alongside Boone, 
In short order, Abraham Lincoln owned thousands of acres and was doing splendidly for himself. But life on the frontier had risks. His fortunes changed in an instant one day, when he and his children were attacked by a group of Native Americans still living in the region. Abraham Lincoln was cut down in the first volley. Maybe he was specially targeted as the eldest of the group, or maybe it was just bad luck. Either way, his son Thomas Lincoln, still a boy, huddled near his father's body in grief and shock. When one of the native warriors came towards him, however, his elder brother Mordecai took up a rifle and shot the man down. The attack ended as quickly as it began. That day undoubtedly changed the course of Thomas Lincoln's life and had great consequences upon him. Mordecai, as the oldest of the Lincoln siblings, inherited everything and became a wealthy man overnight. On the other hand, Thomas, as well as the other children, inherited nothing. And there lay the rub. Although the Lincoln family had never been strangers to hard work, Thomas would eventually start life with very few resources. Exactly why he didn't receive more of an education is a bit unclear. Perhaps he just had little interest in it, but social custom would generally have held Mordecai responsible for ensuring that his brother received a better start in life. Nevertheless, for reasons we can only speculate on, when Thomas Lincoln grew up, he started living on his own from nothing. That said, Thomas proved to be a very bright young man. He started off by performing a wide array of odd jobs, and although he may not have possessed much formal education, he was a good learner, and as Lincoln's never did, did not shy away from work. So he saved up and he took small jobs for the local government, and eventually purchased his own farm. Not long thereafter, he proposed marriage to one Nancy Hanks. Soon, the pair were celebrating the birth of their first child, Sarah, and moved on to a new home. As mentioned before, our Abraham came along in 1809, and the family moved again in search of lasting prosperity. To a degree, the third time really was the charm, and Abraham Lincoln later recalled fond memories of his young life at Knob Creek. Very little, or perhaps absolutely nothing, of great or historical importance occurred to the family in Kentucky, and perhaps it is better that way. One sometimes tires of famous historical figures whose greatness must receive recognition even in the most innocuous of childhood tales. These years belonged to Lincoln and his family alone, and that is no shame. He was a growing lad, he loved his mother, and suffered very little formal education but a good practical one. In any case, rather little is known about Lincoln's infant years, and really, do we need to know more? In 1816, however, Thomas Lincoln decided to move his family yet again. This time, they would go across the Ohio River to the north into Indiana. Perhaps surprisingly, his reasons for this were largely based around the great cause of the war itself, slavery. This should give us a hint as to how deeply the struggle over that institution dove into the fabric of the nation. Farmers in Kentucky, as elsewhere, feared slave labor and fat plantation owners outcompeting them. At the same time, however, Moral and religious arguments against slavery probably played a part in the decision to leave. In contrast to firmly settled Kentucky, however, Indiana was not even a state when the Lincolns arrived, though that would change by the end of the year. The family moved to uncleared land, necessitating backbreaking, time-consuming work to clear it. And, of course, the family also had to construct a shelter and then a small home to live in. Despite the labor and hardships, 1817 proved to be a good year for the Lincolns. 
They acquired a good amount of acreage in good farmland, found a rich and steady supply of meat from wild game, and enjoyed more security of their property than in Kentucky. For the boy Abraham, it seems to have been a fine time. He had some responsibilities and much work, but handled them well. But once again, life on the frontier could turn from easygoing to dangerous in an instant, and the threats were not always obvious. Two such stories from these years demonstrate. For Abraham himself, a stray kick from an unhappy mule nearly ended his young life before it began, although he did quickly recover. The family received no such mercy in the autumn of 1818, however. His mother Nancy and a couple other relatives took ill with a mysterious malady called milk sickness, though well understood today. At the time, it struck randomly and without explanation, and it easily cut down the healthy and young as well as the old or sickly. That fall, a wave of similar deaths passed over the region. For the Lincolns, this event stamped an indelible mark that they could never entirely forget. For Abraham, personally, the exact shape of it is difficult to determine. Certainly, he had been very close to his mother, and he most definitely never forgot her. The family grieved and carried on, as families do, but it is very likely that something inside Abraham changed, maybe for the better and maybe for the worse. Even later in life, he could never entirely reconcile with death, but he kept his loved ones very close. That said, even Abraham Lincoln had his faults, though perhaps fewer than most people. One of those unfortunate parts of his character may also have been sown during those dark times, his personal emotional distance from his father. Throughout his teenage years, Abraham grew more and more estranged from Thomas Lincoln, and the only reason we have is really a very poor one. Lincoln himself claimed that he simply didn't respect his father's lack of learning, but this explanation does not frankly, explain much. Thomas Lincoln had far fewer opportunities than Abraham, yet he definitely did value education. He ensured that Abraham received the benefits of every opportunity available. Now, Thomas Lincoln also hired his son out for pay, which may have been a sore point, but this was also normal and even expected with all the mouths to be fed. In the process, Thomas allowed young Abraham to travel very far and have considerably more freedom than one might expect of a boy that age. The younger Lincoln even worked on a steamboat voyage all the way down to New Orleans and back when he was only 16. Ultimately, the emotional distance may have been no more than a desire on Abraham's part to leave the world of hardscrabble farming behind. But without knowing more about a very obscure bond, no historian can say for certain. Though we can only speculate, however, it is not wildly implausible that without Nancy Hanks Lincoln, Father and son just couldn't reach out to one another. But regardless of the deteriorating relationship with his father, the death of Nancy Hanks had more unforeseen yet also positive impacts on Abraham's life. In 1819, Thomas remarried to Sarah Johnson, an old acquaintance of his from Kentucky, who brought her children into the household. The merging of the two families apparently went quite well. Sarah Johnson, now Sarah Lincoln, brought a sense of domesticity to a rather rough frontier life, and apparently mothered Thomas's children as much as her own. If Thomas had taken on the difficult task of feeding and housing a large family on the frontier, Sarah went after the task of educating and civilizing them with equal energy, and both of them put Abraham to learning whatever books were available, which they undoubtedly recognized would be crucial to a good future. In this case, 
Abraham Lincoln needed little encouragement, for he took to education remarkably well given the few resources available, and whatever existed he consumed with gusto. The years in Indiana went by, and eventually Thomas Lincoln decided to up stakes once more. This time he was bound for central Illinois. The family moved there in 1830, perhaps not coincidentally, right around the time we started with this very series. Again, to trace the history of the Lincoln family, we know that they had come through the Northeast, had stopped here and there in Pennsylvania and Virginia. They had thence gone to Kentucky, where Abraham had been born. Southern Indiana cradled and shaped him. Finally, in the rapidly developing state of Illinois, Lincoln found the place to launch himself, though that would take a few years more. In short, the story of the Lincolns is very nearly the story of the American nation. But regardless of the larger issues, when Abraham turned 21, he decided to leave home for good, and almost immediately got involved with anything and everything that offered a respite from farming. It seems he was bound and determined to never do that again, and he didn't. His first forays into independent living were not, perhaps, the most successful. However, he did earn the respect of many in the little community of New Salem, not far from Springfield and just south of the somewhat more successful town of Petersburg. Among other jobs, Lincoln at one point took up an offer to build a flatboat, hauling goods down the Sangamon River. In his own particular fashion, Lincoln not only helped build the boat, but managed to float it over a small dam with style, and then took it down to New Orleans. We shall pass over much of Lincoln's life in New Salem, although the story is worth telling if for no other reason than to understand the culture of the recently settled frontier states. This certainly included Illinois in this day, but we just don't have the time. Instead, the following list contains just a sampling of the many jobs he did to earn his daily bread. This includes shop clerk, postmaster, carpenter, general store owner, legal drafter, steamboat pilot, surveyor, and, well, a wide array of other odd jobs. He signed up for the Black Hawk War, was elected captain of a company, and then later re-enlisted as a private and served as honorably as any man, although he faced no real danger. Around 1834, Lincoln got it in his head to run for the Illinois State Congress as a member of the burgeoning Rising Whig Party. He had tried previously, in fact, and at the time he lost. However, he did gain a respectable vote for a very first-time candidate, and so young a man at that. Now, however, he had traveled widely within the county, at least, and earned a bit more respect. Besides, he really wanted the salary for the office, and so he planned an energetic campaign. But in addition to speeches and handshakes, one of Lincoln's most useful and valuable talents, as we will see, is his ability to gather political support from across the aisle. This is the first inkling we get of it. Democrats in this race openly supported him, although admittedly this was to stymie the candidacy of a Whig they feared even more. Yet it was Lincoln that they approached, and Lincoln did show himself to possess enough flexibility to make that offer well worth it. Finally, at the same time, Lincoln began to study the law. First, this was part of his preparation for the legislature, at those days located in Vandalia, Illinois, Eventually, he planned on becoming a lawyer himself. This would represent a considerable step up in his social and economic fortunes. As the state boomed and was settled, the demand for lawyers boomed with it. Illinois was pushing back the frontier and starting to become a more developed, organized, and urban state. In the state legislature, Lincoln gained a reputation as a political moderate, 
or at least a canny politician, and those are often the same thing. Among the issues he supported were universal, though still only white, manhood suffrage. But at that time, that was still a live issue in politics, and not necessarily something the Whigs always endorsed. He also favored a key canal project linking the Great Lakes to the Mississippi. And finally, moving the capital to Springfield. This put it much closer to New Salem, and also to the center of the state. This last issue also saw him take a very active role in gathering up votes, creating amendments, and persuading recalcitrant congressmen. This was as good an education in practical politics as any. And when a vote somewhat related to slavery arrived, Lincoln also revealed himself as pro-abolition, but, probably knowing that such a stance would not help him at the polls, did not make some great thundering pronouncement of such. He simply cast his vote and let the record stand. To crown all of this, Lincoln received his license to practice law in 1836, which would come to define the next years of his life. Looking around, he became a law partner with Mr. John Stewart, in effect an apprenticeship learning the ropes of the law courts. Self-study and learning on the job was the norm in the 19th century, so Lincoln had plenty of company, especially given the fast-growing nature of the state and especially the new capital at Springfield. His life as a bachelor was not a lonely one, however. Apart from keeping quite busy with work, he enjoyed an increasingly wide social circle with a number of friends and acquaintances. Outside of his legislative time, Lincoln enjoyed the company of fellows such as Joshua Speed and Edward Baker, who would both help define his life. Speed and Lincoln shared a bed in Springfield. This practice was hardly unusual. They were neither unique, nor even, quite frankly, necessarily alone, since other boarders might well occupy the same room. In the 19th century, mattresses were decidedly not cheap, and not something that every immigrant to the state or its growing capital could bring along. However, Speed and Lincoln would become very close personal friends, and the two men strongly supported one another thereafter. One area where this particular connection became crucial was in the key area of romance. Lincoln did not enjoy a wildly successful time courting the fair maidens of Illinois, though not for lack of trying. His first love, Anne Rutledge, died of an illness several years earlier, which plunged Lincoln into a deeper depression. After moving to Springfield, he began making advances towards one Mary Owens. Unfortunately, Lincoln found a difficult time expressing himself with Owens, who finally rejected him. But in 1839, Lincoln finally made a connection with Mary Todd through the prominent Edwards family, where both were frequent guests. This relationship proved a stormy one. Lincoln and Mary were young, passionate in their own ways, yet startlingly different in social class and background. The Todds were wealthy landowners from Kentucky, and in many ways their recent family history resembled Lincoln's own. However, where Lincoln was a largely self-made lawyer of modest means, the Todd family were well-connected landowners with ample money to spare. The pretty Mary Todd easily attracted Lincoln's eye, though, and he began to court her as best he knew how, which perhaps was not very elegantly. Trouble, though, came when Lincoln got cold feet over the entire relationship, and he finally broke it off with Mary Todd in early 1841. Perhaps part of Lincoln's hesitancy was that his friend Joshua had left for Louisville following the death of his own father, and Lincoln felt adrift without his friend's support. So it came to pass that he went out to visit Speed in Kentucky, where Lincoln was able to offer some surprising emotional support of his own. The problem as it happened, 
lay in the fact that Speed had just become engaged himself, but felt the same worries as Lincoln. Easing Mr. Speed over his jitters helped Lincoln find the courage to overcome his own, and he left Kentucky in much finer condition than when he entered it. That did not mean that his relationship with Mary Todd immediately resumed, however. It took several more months, some chance social encounters, and even hijinks for the two to start up again. Yet despite the rocky beginning, Lincoln finally got around to asking Mary Todd for her hand in marriage. She joyfully accepted. Lincoln was a handsome enough man as a youth, rather impressive physically, and clearly on the rise despite his relatively meager wealth in the moment. And Mary Todd was not only socially connected, but, well, kind and vivacious. The two did not find their love difficult to bear, although there was more than a little tension in it. They also did not experience a long wait to start a family, as their firstborn came along almost exactly nine months after the wedding. Lincoln's new domestic arrangements coincided with his departure from the legislature. He had helped make the Whig Party in Illinois a going concern, but his own concerns were now more a matter of his law practice. In 1841, he left his partnership with Stewart and joined John Logan, still as a junior partner but now a much more experienced lawyer in his own right. He still had many skills to develop, but could now handle enough cases to begin developing a future reputation of his own. However, to Mary's chagrin, Lincoln found himself very often away from home handling those cases. Springfield may have been the capital, but lawyers in those days quite often made ends meet by writing circuit. That is, they traveled around the state with the judges themselves, taking cases on the spot and representing people in small towns. Lonely little localities literally lacked local lawyers like Lincoln. But for Abraham Lincoln, it was also a good way to make political connections and friendships around the state. On the downside, though, the circuit courts kept him away from home for several months of the year, with only sporadic visits back during that time. Plus, they were not especially comfortable treks. The circuit lawyers frequently slept two or even more to a bed, in whatever quarters were available, dirty or clean. By 1844, Lincoln felt more confident and decided to strike out on his own and formed a new legal practice. Or rather, not entirely alone, but as a senior partner, for he took on one William Billy Herndon as a junior. Lincoln had met Herndon when the latter worked at Joshua Speed's store and sort of took the younger man under his wing. Lincoln helped teach Herndon the law in the first place, so it was perhaps no surprise that Billy would choose to help form the practice. Herndon would become an honest partner for 15 years and a loyal friend to Lincoln for the remainder of his life. Billy Herndon, in fact, would later go on to write a rich biography of his mentor. In the short term, however, Lincoln's status as a lawyer rose significantly, and his party standing grew in sync. Just as success led to Lincoln becoming bored with state office, however, he found himself becoming restless and aiming for higher ambitions. At the same time that the controversy over Texas annexation burned over the United States, Lincoln laid the foundations for a new political career. In 1843, Illinois Congressman John Stewart decided against another run for office, opening the way for Lincoln to enter the race himself. Unfortunately, this did not go Lincoln's way. He was beaten to the Whig nomination by one John J. Hardin. Meanwhile, Lincoln failed to win the favor of his own home county, who voted for Edward Baker instead. The sting of the latter failure was muted, however, for Baker was a close friend of the Lincolns. However, as Abraham Lincoln would prove over and over in his life, a setback was not the end of a political career. 
Hardin won office, but it was only for a two-year term. Lincoln took the matter in stride, and would go on to campaign vigorously for Baker in the following election. Indeed, he did so in such an energetic fashion that he won the approval of a wider circle of supporters than before, and traveling throughout the new 7th Congressional District brought him into contact with more party members as well. Even more fortunate, Baker agreed to maintain a single-term principle, and he kept to it. That appeared to clear the way for Lincoln, who could saunter into office in 1847 unopposed. This turned out not to be quite as simple as Lincoln imagined. After sitting out Baker's term, Hardin made some noises himself about going back to office. At least on paper, Hardin had more experience, greater visibility, and more influence. But Hardin didn't feel especially confident, and he resorted to various political maneuvers to outdo Lincoln. They all failed. What allowed Lincoln to finally gather the nomination was the strength of all those grassroots bonds. Hardin, somewhat humiliated and possibly furious, volunteered for service in the Mexican-American War as a face-saving measure. He died heroically at Buena Vista. The way finally open, Lincoln easily won the election and obtained his first national office, marking a huge step up in his public standing. He also attained political visibility in a way that he never possessed before. However, his term in national office proved to be perhaps a bit more contentious and less triumphant than he initially hoped. Lincoln was about to get a first-hand lesson in the fact that being correct is often less important in politics than savvy courting of public opinion. Way back when, we covered in brief the Whig opposition's activities in Congress during the Mexican-American War, and Lincoln specifically involved himself in calling for the so-called spot resolution. That is, he made frequent and vocal demands to know the exact location where Mexican soldiers had attacked the cavalry patrol in what became, in retrospect, the spark of war. This was emphatically not a subject which Polk particularly wanted to discuss, nor which he ever would risk answering. Lincoln was right, but unfortunately in the final analysis it went nowhere, despite being a rather spot-on question. Polk may have deceived the public, but he had done that very effectively. Once the United States committed itself to war, well, everyone joined in, even though many had substantial reservations. Certainly, this included the potent Henry Clay, who found himself on the political outs until sympathy over the loss of his son and a growing anti-war feeling rebuilt his public popularity. Questioning the details, even meaningful details, ultimately earned Lincoln no friends except a like-minded group of younger Whig legislators. He did, however, receive a reward, in the form of the embarrassing nickname of Spotty for his trouble. His other significant, but no more successful endeavor, was an attempt to end slavery in the nation's capital. It may be true that close doesn't count for much in politics, but it's well worth exploring the attempt because it shows Lincoln's efforts to bridge the political divide productively. Lincoln's abolitionism would hardly measure up to the standard of Northeastern abolitionists, men like Charles Sumner. However, he made a point during his term in office of trying to stop the peculiar institution in his own way. To Lincoln, this was furthering the overall goal of pushing slavery towards extinction in a productive fashion. Washington, D.C. in those days was actually one of the nation's busiest slave-trading cities, a fact which abolitionists, and not a few men in the Whig Party, 
regarded as particularly noxious. However, Lincoln did not back most of the anti-slavery bills when he thought they were merely symbolic gestures. Instead, he developed his own course. Lincoln's bill called for voluntary, compensated, and gradual emancipation after a public referendum. He crafted the bill skillfully enough that it won private approval from both anti-slavery activists and pro-slavery Southerners. Unfortunately for Lincoln, that's about as far as the bill went. Once Lincoln submitted it to committee, he ran into hardline opposition on two fronts. Other pro-slavery men may have been willing to compromise, but John C. Calhoun was still kicking, and he never did have much use for it. Calhoun set his faction dead set against any such bill. Not helping matters, however, was that other anti-slavery activists, evidently unimpressed by the favor shown to Lincoln's plan by John Quincy Adams himself, countered that compensation for slavery was absolutely out of the question. After being torn apart from South and North alike, well, obviously the bill went nowhere. The one bright spot in Lincoln's career in Congress was his support for Taylor's candidacy although we have seen that said term in office ended up cut short. So in lieu of describing his career, I will take a moment to describe the city of Washington he inhabited. Washington in those days was no longer a tiny town, instead a vigorous crossroads with tens of thousands of citizens. This was far from the metropolis it would in time become, or the beating heart of the Union war machine created around it in the future. But Washington was, in this day, very much a rich town in the style of Virginia or Maryland. Slaves were also present, by the hundreds or the thousands. The Capitol building where Congress met was also not yet the structure we know today. The original Capitol building was smaller, without the large wings for the Senate and the House, and a much less impressive dome. The addition and expansion of those elements would begin in 1850, and the dome would not be completed until after the Civil War. Culturally, too, Washington was a bit of a mixed bag without many institutions of its own. The most influential inhabitants, naturally, tended to be transient, turning over every few years, taking away a big chunk of the cultural vitality of the city when they did. Within the city, the legislators often boarded together and rarely brought their families along. Lincoln, in fact, was unusual in doing so. However, his wife Mary and children grew discontent with the loneliness and isolation in the capital city, they left within a year. As unpleasant as this must have been for the menfolk kept away from their families, it did help them form social bonds that made politics happen. People from the same state or region frequently stayed in the same hotel or boarding house, arguing political points and making deals. Much of the political culture of the United States emerged over shared meals in these places. On the downside, it did also contribute to voting blocks that made reform in some cases nigh impossible. For example, the fact that many Southerners boarded together and socialized constantly made deviations on the subject of slavery much more difficult. It may have given more voice and weight to the most ardent and loud pro-slavery men. Across the Potomac River to the southwest, the grounds of Arlington House provided a bucolic sight for the eyes of anyone wandering the National Mall. Owned by George Custis, stepson of the great President Washington himself, Arlington House a great many odds and ends of historic value. Though comfortable enough, except in summertime, Washington itself had a number of fine public buildings, but few museums or sites of interest to the traveler. Lincoln only served one term. He held the same single-term's principle as his predecessors. 
So he left the city relatively quickly and followed his family back to Illinois. At that moment, he had no immediate political future. Lincoln essentially never wanted to hold the same office twice anyway, and in Illinois, for the moment, he had risen about as far as it was possible to go. For further success, he would need to run for the Senate or the governorship. However, both those opportunities were few and far between, and the political reality of the day was that no Whig could win the governor's office at all, and would not until 1856. While growing in influence, the party remained a minority in Illinois. Most voters still lived near the Missouri River, and they tended to vote for the Democratic ticket. So Lincoln returned to his law practice, hoping for a rich political appointment, but not receiving one. There he stayed for the next five years, taking on cases with Billy Herndon and living life at home. Much as before, this began with a small fee per case, often just five or ten dollars. However, a funny thing happened. Lincoln really was a good lawyer, and over time he attracted wealthier clients. Now, he wasn't necessarily the best legal practitioner in terms of technical skill with the law, but he had a quick mind and carefully studied precedent. In addition, Lincoln was well-respected and managed to make himself well-liked by nearly every lawyer and judge he happened to meet, which often worked in his favor when he came before that judge or opposed that lawyer's motion later. Of particular interest was his relationship to the fast-growing railroads, who became his most valuable clients. His first such case was for the Alton and Sangamon Railroad in 1851. Although I'll spare you the details, the case held significance because of the economic importance of the developing rail network. Also, there was an uncommon, but very important public-private partnership that spurred this growth. Lincoln, arguing on behalf of the railroads, advanced their interests, which was also good Whig ideology. Railroads, after all, were the textbook definition of internal improvements in development. In the Whig view, railroads should be exempted from local obstructionism and the warping effect of other interests. This doesn't mean that Lincoln became a shill for the railroads, however. He would, and did, take cases opposing them if he chose, and in one hilarious instance sued his own railroad client for not paying his fees. The net effect, however, was that he soon became one of the leading lawyers in Illinois. He also became if not quite wealthy, then at least far more comfortable than before. He also gained more time to spend at home. After years of hard work, he no longer needed to spend three to six months annually traveling the circuit courts to make ends meet. This brings us back to discussing Lincoln's family, since naturally that's where he spent much of that extra time. From 1843 to 1853, Abraham and Mary had four children, all sons, Robert, Edward, William, and Tad. Edward, named for the family friend Edward Baker, would die of an illness at age three, and we will discuss the fate of the other Lincoln children in time. Abraham Lincoln was and remained somewhat unusual in that he would eventually ascend to the presidency with an entire brood of children in tow. Lincoln's work, though, and the time kept away from home, had a bit of an impact on his early family life. Mary Todd once became so unhappy with his lack of attention that he whacked him in the nose with a piece of firewood, which I would imagine only definitely grabbed him away from his law books. More than that, however, his oldest son Robert always felt more distant to him compared to the younger boys. Lincoln naturally had more time to rear the latter, although this was, from Robert's retrospective view, later on. The boys do seem to have idolized their father, who, for his part, enforced very little discipline, if any. Perhaps remembering his own childhood of hard work, 
Lincoln largely allowed his children to do as they pleased. Thus situated, Abraham Lincoln lived comfortably for several years before the shattering of the party system brought him back to politics. And for that, we'll meet next time when we examine the fallout from Stephen Douglas's Kansas-Nebraska Act and how it ultimately destroyed one man's presidential ambitions and caused another to rise in his place. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining, and I hope you'll come back next time.